Open your Bibles this morning to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, as we get into God's Word today, I'm so excited to share uh, the message with you this morning. Um, quite often, um, really probably the normal is to uh, Sunday morning sermons are usually um, prepared, started to be prepared on Monday. Um, unless it's a series and I kind of know where we're going, but if it's just a one-time message, um, I'll start preparing it on Monday, a little more on Tuesday. Usually by Wednesday, the, the message is pretty much done, uh, ready to go, and, and away we go. But this week, uh, it was one of those weeks where uh, Thursday came, and I finished up the message on Thursday uh, and got home Thursday night. Just wasn't really feeling as though that was really what I was supposed to be speaking on. So I was praying about it Friday, Saturday, uh, last night at about 10.30, um, put the outline together that I'm going to share with you this morning. And so I just want to let you know, I always, I'm always a little annoyed at God when he does that. Um, can we just be honest this morning? Uh, sometimes God prompts us in ways that isn't convenient, uh, isn't always what we would like it to be. And so, but I, I'm truly excited for this morning, and I pray that you will learn and, and discover even anew that we have a Father in Heaven who is literally the world's best dad. Uh, there is no greater Father on planet Earth that we can compare our God to. Um, and when I when I was thinking through this last night, and even this morning, and it's kind of similar. There's some similarities to. Uh, what I was already prepared to share on, but the outline itself drastically changed. But I want us to just worship him this morning as our good and loving and holy and perfect and just and gracious Heavenly Father today. I want us to worship in spirit and in truth as we honor him as our Heavenly Father today. Over the last few months, I've kind of thought through what we would do on Father's Day. And uh, there's some things I'm going to challenge us to at the end of the message that has been on my heart literally since probably November uh, of last year. And so I pray that it's an encouragement to you. But I want us to walk through this this morning. And I have to acknowledge, first and foremost, to the dads here today. Uh, if you are a father, you know the blessing that fatherhood has brought into your life. There's challenges, there's obstacles, there's hurdles, but there's great, great blessings. And so, so thank you to the dads that are here today that walk in integrity by God's grace. And I love the song that, that Gary's saying, not, we're not perfect, but we strive for Christ-likeness. We strive to live in a way as men and as dads that would honor Christ. And I know we've all fallen short of that, obviously. That's why we need grace. But our goal, our desire is to strive in this way. And so to the dads here today, thank you for being a dad that loves Christ and desires his children and his family to know Christ deeper and, and more effectively. Maybe some of you here today, your dads were great dads. You couldn't have asked for a better role model, a better example, a better friend. Uh, maybe he didn't always do what we wanted him to do, but he came alongside you at the right times. And you honor him today. Uh, maybe for some of us, your dads were not good dads. Uh, your dads were not good examples. Uh, maybe for some of you, your dad wasn't even involved in your life. Uh, as of 2017, the Census Bureau tells us that one in four, hear me now, one in four children in America in 2017 were growing up or are growing up in fatherless homes. 
19.7 million children in America in 2017, no dad in the home. Do you know there's a direct connection in a lot of ways to some of the things we see in our culture as far as the violence, the criminal activity, and all these kind of things? So much of that is directly connected to, in many people's minds, to a fatherless home. That's not saying that a mom can't raise good children. That's not what I'm getting at. That's not the point I'm trying to make. The point I'm trying to make is that God has designed man and woman to come together in marriage, then to have children and raise those children up in the, the way of the Lord, to honor God and how they raise their children. As that's happening in a home, it's not perfect, but God knows best, and a mom and a dad are both needed that we may grow up in the right way. And there's so many reasons why this doesn't always work out, obviously. And I know it's not always one person's decision or the other's. But my point is, though, when that breaks down, that has a negative impact on the children. I truly believe that motherless homes have a negative impact on children. I believe God is designed where both mom and dad influence their children with their own uniqueness, gifts, talents, and abilities that make a great impact and difference in the child's life. So maybe for you, you didn't grow up with your dad, per se. Maybe you're like me. My dad left when I was about a year, year and a half old. And from what I understand, he wasn't really worth staying around anyway, from what my mom tells me. But that's just what she tells me. But I was so blessed that at the age of seven, a man came into my life that became a father figure for me and still in my life today. Maybe for some of you, it was a grandfather. It was an uncle. It was, it was a fatherly figure that was not even biologically connected to you but came alongside you and encouraged you and nurtured you as a man or a woman today, you look back and you say, this person had a great impact on my life. Maybe you're here today and you've lost your dad. He's already gone on. Then today we honor the memories and the influence that person left in our lives. My point is this. No matter where you are today in that spectrum, whether you have your dad, you don't, your dad wasn't really there when you were growing up, somebody else was involved, Today is about honoring those human men in our lives that have impacted us and encouraged us in the things of Christ. But I don't believe we can truly celebrate Father's Day by not acknowledging our God and Heavenly Father. Because everything that is good in our lives, the Bible says, comes from Him. Every good gift comes down from the Father above, James tells us. So we celebrate Father's Day today not by just honoring those father figures in our own life, but by celebrating the real world's best dad. So I want to celebrate our good and loving and perfect Heavenly Father. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 6. Just one simple verse to start. And then we're going to talk about our loving Heavenly Father and what makes him such a great dad. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. But to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. That beginning part there is so key. But to us there is but one God, the Father. There is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him. Let's pray and ask God to open our minds to the truth of his word this morning. Father, we thank you for this time together. 
And we thank you for meeting here with us. We pray, Lord, that as we gather together, that we would acknowledge you as our Father, acknowledge you as our great, perfect, majestic, righteous, holy, and just. Lord, when we start doing this and start listing off adjectives to describe you, I feel that we fall so short. We could go on for days and just praise and praise and praise and praise and still not even scratch the surface of what you're worthy of. So this morning we pray that we would just come together and open our hearts and minds and say, God, we're going to lift you up today. I thank you for the worship that has already exalted you in the name of Christ and all that you are for us and all that you've done to us uh, through us. I thank you for the scripture that was read. Psalm 139, where could we go that you are not? Lord, you are where we are. And I know that to some of us that might be a negative thing if we're living in sin, but I pray that it's more of an encouragement to us to know that we can go nowhere without you and your hand over us as your children. We are blessed to have you as our Father. As I pray, Lord, that no matter what kind of earthly father we may have had in our past, I pray that we would not project their failures onto you, but rather see you as the perfect, complete just all-inclusive Father that we need. And I pray, Lord, that we'd learn from you today, that as we worship you, we would desire to be more like you as dads and as men and as followers of Christ, period. Lord, we love you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 8, 6 is a powerful reminder that God is our Father, our Creator, and we exist for Him and His glory. And that is a pretty astounding, all-inclusive thought. And it's very countercultural, isn't it? That you were created by God for God. You exist for him. He doesn't exist for you. I think so many of us need to wrap our minds around that truth. I think so many of us, maybe you've fallen into the trap as I have, where we start to pray as though God exists for us. We start to live as though he's our genie. We just saw uh, the new Aladdin movie. Uh, they, they redid Aladdin. I think Hollywood's running out of ideas because they're just remaking all these movies from the 90s. I don't know what's going on. But we took the boys Friday, first day of summer vacation. We took them to see Aladdin. And every time I see the scenes where he's rubbing the lamp and the genie comes out and basically says, I'm here to serve you. So many of us take that very same mindset and we project that on God as though God is just waiting. What, what do you want? Can I do that for you? Can I do that for you? You just tell me and I'll do it. I'm here for you. We've lowered our God down to a subhuman level where we think he serves us. How arrogant. How unbiblical. When you read about people who stand before God and it says they literally fall on their faces, dead men before the presence of God's holiness, and we are on earth thinking it's all about us, I think we're going to get to heaven and realize very quickly it's all about him. And it's always been about him. And so first and foremost, we have to understand that we exist for him. And so as we understand relationship, that connection, then we can project the right image of fatherhood onto God and live in submission to that authority. But I want to discover together this morning, what kind of father is God? What kind of father is he? And how is he displayed to us his characteristics for us? What makes him surely the best dad ever? By the way, I am always a little interested when I walk around Walmart or any other store 
and you see these t-shirts, Universe's Best Dad. Galaxy, best dad in the galaxy. Number one dad. Re- really? Really? Like you're the number, you're, you're, you, you're right here, you on planet earth. Out of all the dads, you're the number one dad. And you say, ah, that's not what I mean. My family thinks I'm a number one dad. I have to remind my kids sometimes. I'm like, I'm not as good as you think I am. Like, like I'm not number one by, by any stretch. But we see these things and we think about them. And I understand why we do them. But, but he really is the world's, the universe's, the galaxies, all of creation's best dad. So God is a father. And how does he display himself to us? How do we see these things? First and foremost, God is a father. If you're taking notes, I encourage you to do so. I'm going to give you a handful of scriptures here that we're not going to have time to go to all of them. So I encourage you to write them down. Remember what we always say. Uh, 98% of people who take notes in church go to heaven. So if you're thinking about, should I take notes or not, where do you want to be on that percentage line, I guess is what we're really asking. So God is a father who first and foremost loves his children. He loves his children. John 3.16 displays that love, tells us about that love. He has a love for the world. He has a love for his children. So how does he show his love to us? Well, the first thing we have to realize is that he loves his children And he shows that love through provision, through provision. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 26. We're not going to turn there for time's sake, but jot it down. Matthew chapter 6, verse 26. And I love as Jesus is teaching and talking here, he talks about if God can see the needs of creation, if he feeds the birds, if he provides for creation, if he takes care of these things, then do you really think you're that much less important than the birds? The idea is if he provides in creation, then he'll obviously provide for you. That's why Jesus says, don't worry about these things. Don't get so caught up in all this stuff. Just trust God is going to provide. Now, this doesn't mean we sit on our hands and do nothing. We still put work and effort into things. But as we're doing what we're called to do, and we don't see it quite leveling out, we don't freak out. That should be a t-shirt. When it doesn't level out, don't freak out. Somebody write that down. We're going to get that copyrighted after service today, okay? We're going to make a million bucks. And we're going to tie that to the church, amen. That's what we're going to do. That's... But as you think about that, someone on the recording was like, I knew it, he's all about the money. See, it's all about the money. And we think about this idea that he provides for us. He provides for us. The truth is, he may not give you what you want. Hear me now. He may not give you what you want when you want it, but he will always provide what we need as his children. Some of us in our experiences, we think, I don't know if I've seen that really be true. If my child comes to me and asks for ice cream sundae before dinner, he wants it. He comes to me. He thinks, Dad loves me. He wants to provide for me. He'll give me what I want. And I look at the child and I say, child, because you don't know who it's going to be. It could be Anthony or Josiah. So I just say, child. That's how I dress my family, woman and child. No, I'm just kidding. I'm totally kidding. Do not do that. I've actually talked to a guy. He said he calls his wife woman jokingly, but people are like, that don't know. They're like, <gasps> and she just like fluffs it off because, well, they don't care, guys. They really don't care what we say. Um, so, 
But when you think about this, if I said no, it's going to spoil dinner. It's not right for you to have right now. My eight-year-old may not fathom that. My eight-year-old may think, I'm hungry now. Ice cream's good. I want ice cream. I, I don't see the problem. Where's the breakdown here? He's not putting together that if I eat the ice cream now, I won't eat dinner. And if I don't eat dinner, then I'll be hungry before bed. He, he doesn't think that way through. He's thinking purely in this moment, I want ice cream. I only see ice cream good. No bad ice cream. What's wrong with ice cream? Amen. Amen. <laughs> you, you, you know, change ice cream to brownies and we're good, okay? And so often, we have to think this way so often. When God doesn't do what we want, we cannot change God. We have to say, okay, I trust you as good because your word says you're good. I trust you as loving because your word says you're loving. I trust you as my father because your word says you're my father. So if you're not going to do this in this moment, even though I think it's what I want and need, I'm going to trust that you have something else. You know better. You're going to use this in some way to instruct me and to teach me and to grow me in the things of Christ. And when God doesn't do what we want and he doesn't provide the way we think he should, we have two choices. We either trust and submit or we rebel and we walk away. We say, okay, God, I don't get it, but I'm going to submit anyway. Or we say, I don't get it, I'm going to do it myself because you're not really doing it anyway and you won't do it because you don't really care, you don't really love or whatever. And I know that I'm saying this very black and white, but in the moment, it's tough when God doesn't do what we think he should be doing. And this is all through scripture, by the way. Read the Old Testament. Read the Psalms. Read, read the book of Haggai when he talks about, God, why are the wicked prospering and the righteous suffering? Why aren't you doing something? And then God says, okay, this is what I'm going to do, Haggai. This is how I'm going to change everything and make it better. But it's going to take you somewhere you're not wanting to go. And he tells Haggai, and Haggai says, God, I wouldn't do it that way. Isn't that humanity? Do this. Okay, I'll do it, but I'm going to do it this way. No, no, no. Don't do it that way. Do it this way. I want to be like Jesus Christ. God, and we pray these prayers. I want to be like Jesus. I want to be like Jesus. And then God says, okay, great. I'm going to take you through some suffering. and I'm going to allow some trials because it's going to produce a Christ-likeness. Oh, God, I don't want to go through suffering. Make my life as convenient and comfortable as possible. And he's sitting there going, I can't make you like Jesus and make your life most comfortable. Those two things don't go together. So it's kind of one or the other. You can be really comfortable, but you're not going to experience the sufferings of Christ, which Paul and Peter both say produces a Christ-likeness. God will always provide in his way, in his time. But one of the things we have to do is understand that he will do what he wills. And sometimes we need to reevaluate the words need and want in our lives. Sometimes a want becomes a need if we think on it too long. But he provides for us. He shows his love to his children through provision. Let's move on. He also shows his love to his children through prayer. Through prayer, Matthew chapter 7 and verse 11, we have the gift of prayer. Turn over there with me just real quick. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 11. This is a great verse for provision and even for prayer. Matthew chapter 7, verse 11. If you then, being evil, that's how, by the way, God sees us naturally. Isn't that encouraging? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, much 
more or how much more shall your father, which is in heaven, give good things to them that ask him? See, there's a key here. He provides and he does it through prayer. He says, if you ask him, he'll give good things. There is probably no greater gift given to the church than prayer, that I can ask God of things in prayer. But again, let's not, it's not a genie in a lamp. It's not, I prayed about it, God. Now you're bound to do it because you said, if I ask, you'll do it. There's some, some things here that Jesus explains. That's why we take the weight of Scripture. We don't just take one verse and build the whole argument around it, and we get mad when God doesn't do it. He says it's got to be in his name, according to his will. There's also a verse in James that says if you ask anything upon or to consume it upon your own lust, God's not going to do that. So if I only want this thing to drift from God into apathy or to be as wealthy as possible, and it's all about me, it's all about me, it's all about my wants, and God's not even involved in this situation, that may be you're consuming it on your own lust. Why would God answer that with a yes when he knows it's going to drift you into where you're not going to be with him? Peter says if you don't treat your wife with grace, your prayers may be hindered. I mean, there's, there's things to this that God in the whole counsel of his word says, I want to give this to you, but there's some things that have to be kind of filters that have to be washed through. This prayer has to be washed through first. But he will answer the things that agree with his will, that glorify him, that blesses us, and they're always good. Remember, a no from God in prayer may be the best thing for us. A no from God in a prayer may actually be the good thing he's giving to us. God hears us, and then he responds to us, again, according to his will. When we pray, we must examine our motives for the request, but however, know that God knows best. You guys remember that show? I saw it in reruns when I was a kid, because I wasn't around when it was out originally, but Father Knows Best. You guys remember this show? Your Father in heaven literally knows best. And if you're sitting there going, I don't think so, because stop. You're making God down here. If you tell him, I don't get it, so you're not doing what's best. What does Isaiah say? His thoughts are not our. His ways are not our. We don't dumb God down to us. We submit humbly under the mighty hand of God, and we trust him that in prayer, He will do what he sees fit. But we pray and ask as a response to faith. We ask because we believe this is what God wants. And I'm telling you, there's no better way to explain it than when when God answers a prayer and it's clear that it was a God-answered prayer. Prayer is the greatest gift. He provides for us. He, He allows us to pray to him and he shows his love to us through those things. Also, the rest of the message and I was trying to think about how to write this out in the outline, the rest of the message is all laid on the foundation of his love and grace for us. So I specifically talked about provision and prayer, but everything we're going to talk about is laid on the foundation of his love for us. See, what also makes God the greatest dad in the world is he is a father who not only loves his children, but he is a father who corrects his children. He is a father who corrects his children. Go over to the book of Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3. Way back in the Old Testament. Proverbs chapter 3. I'm going to give you a couple more verses as well. Uh, You can also write down if you're taking notes. Uh, We're going to go to Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12 in just a moment. But we're also going to give you Hebrews chapter 12, 
verses 5 through 11. So we're going to Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 through 12. And you can write down for notes as a New Testament comparison, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11. Proverbs 3, 11 through 12 says this. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, even as a father, the son in whom he delights. Despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. See, God is a father who corrects his children. And I'm so thankful for it because we need his correction. How does he do this? Through his word, first and foremost. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the word of God is a two-edged sword that divides us open before the Lord, revealing the very depth of who we are, which I believe also corrects the things that is revealed. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16 that one of the blessings of Scripture is that it corrects and reproofs us. It reproves our motives, our desires. It convicts us of what is wrong and directs us to what is right. The Word of God is how one of the tools that God uses to correct His children. Proverbs says, just as the son corrects his child, or as the father corrects his son, so the father corrects his children. One speaker said it this way, that when the Word of God is being used by the Holy Spirit of God to correct us, he said this, it's like the Spirit of God speaks through the Word telling us, quote, no, not like that, more like this. I love that. It's when the Spirit of God comes alongside and in that firm but yet gentle, gracious, loving voice through the Word of God says, no, 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 not like that, more like this. I'm so thankful that the Spirit of God, the Word of God, comes alongside every one of us because we all need times of correction. We all need discipline in our lives from God because sometimes we can drift. Our minds get off from the wrong things. And the Holy Spirit of God says, no, 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 not like that, more like this. And it's never a bad thing to be corrected by God. He corrects us through his word, but he also corrects his children through others in Christ. Through others in Christ. I mentioned we're going to have a lot of verses today. Go over to Galatians chapter 2. I'm so glad you brought a copy of the Word of God with you, whether in paper form or on your device. Um, Again, if you do not have a copy of God's Word, we encourage you to go by the Welcome Center. You can pick one up totally free, no credit card, no blood type, Nothing, just yours. No social security number. You can get a, like, like something. Just, you can just have one. Um, and so I want to give you God's word today. If you don't have a copy for yourself, please don't feel weird about that either or, or, or just awkward. Um, I didn't have a Bible until I was probably about 17, 18 years old um, that I actually started reading for myself. And so I encourage you, get a copy of God's word. It will radically change your life. So Galatians chapter 2, we see in verse 11. Not only does God correct us through his word, but he corrects us through others in Christ. And this, again, this is hard for us. We don't like this as independent Americans. We want to do what we want to do. We're right all the time. There's my way and there's the wrong way. But look at this example here. It's one of the best in Galatians chapter 2 in verse 11. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. 
For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles, but when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which are of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. This is the key. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest thou uh, livest after the manner of Gentiles and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? And so now there's some cultural things happening here, some different things taking place that we're not going to have time to get into. But here's the point. Paul tells Peter, you weren't living in accordance with the gospel. You weren't living in a way that honored God. And so Paul says, I basically, in today's language, I got in his face about it. I went face to face and I said, hey, this isn't, you're not doing right right here. Now remember, this might sound harsh, but what did Paul also tell us later? To speak truth in love to go humbly and gently. So we can't assume, well, Paul's being arrogant here and just boastful and getting in Paul's fa- Peter's face. No, no, no. I believe Paul was going in love. I believe Paul was speaking truth in love. But he said a couple things here. Because Peter wasn't living in accordance with the gospel, it was leading others astray, even Barnabas. And so Paul says, no, 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 no. I had to say something to him. I had to approach him. I had to kind of go face to face with him. Jesus, the very first thing. Man, I wish we'd get this. I wish I would get this. The very first thing Jesus tells the church in Matthew is church discipline. The very first instruction he gives to his church is, hey, when you have aught with a brother, here's how you handle it. You go one-on-one. You go two-on-one. You bring it before the church. These are the first instructions that he told his church, his disciples. Here, Peter is living in a way not in accordance with God's word. So what does Paul do? He does what God encourages. He goes to him and says one-on-one, hey, this is this. This is not right. I'm quite sure it wasn't easy for Paul to do this or comfortable. Maybe that's a better word. I'm sure there was an awkwardness. I'm sure it wasn't something he was looking forward to. But again, God will use other people in Christ to come alongside us and correct us in our thinking. And if it's, if it's affirmed in God's word, then we need to listen. We said this a while ago. If everybody in your area of influence who loves you, and especially if they're in Christ, is all saying the same things and warning you of the same things, maybe you need to step back and say, maybe it's not they're crazy. Maybe I need to listen and make some changes. Maybe I need to receive this as correction from God. See it as a good thing. Now, I'm not talking about the critical people who always want to make you like them. I'm not talking about those people who just always want to nag you and nag you and nag you. I've said it before. Years ago, there was somebody that would sit in a service and literally take notes off my message just to correct me later. And it wasn't heresy. It wasn't heretical teaching. It was, well, you lean this way and put your hand in your pocket. And I wouldn't have done it like that. I would have said like this. And I think if you want to be a good pastor, you should do it like this. And I'd get letters like this. I used to read them. I started reading them because I was always taught, oh, there's a, there's a nugget of truth in here somewhere. Well, there was a nugget of something in there, but it wasn't truth. You, you get where I'm going? It's church. Come on now. I got to be careful. But we, we know this stuff. So then I realized, wait, why would I look for a a small little morsel of 
of, of food in the dumpster of this letter when I can go to the Word of God or go to others in Christ that I trust as spiritual leaders and be fed as though going to the grocery store. So the letters just kind of disappeared. I'm not talking about critical people. I'm talking about those that are in Christ, that love you, that are not judging superficially or from a distance, but they're down with you and they're loving you and praying with you. And they say, listen, I've seen this in your life and I'm just concerned because I'm worried it's going to hurt you or destroy your family. Please, would you wake up to this? Paul goes to Peter. Now, again, we think of this as normal. We think Paul was the kind of the rock star of the early church. But really, the first 10 chapters of Acts, it's Peter that's the main man. Peter was the big dog. Peter was the spokesman of the apostles. Peter saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter is the one that preached on the day of Pentecost and thousands get saved. This was not just some guy in the church. This was Peter. Paul, who says, I'm the least of the apostles, but the chiefest of sinners went humbly to Peter and confronted him in Christ. And I believe because it was the best thing for the church. God corrects us because he loves us. Also, God is a father who loves, who corrects, and who sacrifices for his children. Who sacrifices for his children. Galatians, we're already there in chapter 2. Go over to chapter 4 in verse 5. Galatians chapter 4 in verse Five. And he is a great father because he loves us, because he corrects us, and because he sacrifices for his children. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 5. Look what it says here. Let's start in verse 4, actually. I apologize. Verse 4. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem that were them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of the Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You see right there, we see the sacrifice of love. God sent forth his Son. Why would God do this? Why would God send his son to be born of a woman, to live a sinless life, and then to die on the cross? Because we needed it. God the Father sacrifices for his children because we need it. He sees our need. He sees our deepest longing. And he realizes, I will sacrifice for you because it's what you need. It's the best thing for you. We had no hope. No chance of eternal life or forgiveness of sin. And so God did not what we even wanted, but what we needed. Do you realize he sent Christ when we didn't want Christ to come? What does the Bible say? What did Jesus say about when he came and showed us the light? Men actually hate the lights. We prefer the darkness. We don't want our sins exposed. When we were enemies with God, God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. We were distant from God, didn't want anything to do with God. We hated God, but we needed God. We just didn't realize it. So our good father said, I'll do what's needed, even though you don't know you need it. He sent his son to die upon a criminal's cross that we might have eternal life. We must realize that God is willing to do anything and has in truth done everything needed for us to have a relationship with him, to be with him. And again, why would he do that? Because we needed it and because it pleases him. Because it pleased him. 
God the Father did all that was necessary for us so that we could glorify him and please him by being with him for all of eternity. John chapter 14 tells us in the beginning there, verses 1 through 6, Jesus says that where I am, there you may be also. That was the goal. That was the purpose of the salvation message, to take us to God, that we would live in eternity with him, our creator, because he loves and it pleases him when we come to know Christ. He is pleased when one is lost, one that is lost is found. He rejoices and is overjoyed when someone cries out in repentance and receives his grace. Man, are you thankful that God sacrificed for you? Are you thankful that God did all that was needed for you when you didn't even know your need was God? Are you thankful that you get to spend eternity with him, not because of who you are, but because your father is good enough to do all that is needed to provide a way? That God loves you so much, he did everything possible. And the minute you placed your faith in Christ, he rejoiced. This is truly the whole point of the parable in Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, the most popular part of that parable is, is the prodigal son. But it's actually the third part of a parable in the gospel of Luke chapter 15. And every part of that parable has the same point or purpose. That that which is found brings great rejoicing and great pleasure to the one who lost it. He is pleased when we find and follow Christ. You see, he is a good father. He is our father who loves, who corrects, who sacrifices for his children. But he is also a father who teaches his children. Who teaches his children. How does he as a father teach his children? Well, the first thing he has done is given us his Holy Spirit. Again, for time's sake, I'm not going to turn there, but John chapter 16, verse 13, if you're taking notes. John 16, verse 13. He has given us his spirit to teach us. The Bible says in John that he is going to lead us into all truth. He has placed in us at the moment of salvation the very author of the word of God. Think about that. God himself indwelling you at the moment of salvation, giving you everything you need to live this life for his glory and the praise of the Father. To walk with you. The Bible says he is a comforter, paraclete, one who comes alongside, puts his arm around you and walks with you, guides you and leads you in all truth. He is the great teacher. He teaches us more than we can ever learn from a human author. But again, we have to realize it doesn't take the place of a human teacher. When the Bible says that, that you don't even need a human teacher because you have the Spirit of God, it's not saying get rid of all your human teachers. It's saying that when you're apart from the church, apart from the spiritual authority in your life, and it's just you and God, He can, will lead you as you're with Him before the Word of God. So not only has He given us the Spirit to teach us he has given us the church and those in a spiritual authority over us, pastors and elders of the church. Ephesians chapter 4. It's one book over, so just go there with me. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. We see here the foundation of the church being laid and then the extension into the rest of the New Testament. And he gave some apostles, Ephesians 4, 11. And he gave some apostles... And some prophets, so we see that the apostleship coming in, those that laid the foundation of the church, 
Then he says, and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. In the original Greek, pastors and teachers is actually just one word, pastor-teacher. It's not two separate words in the original language. Why does he do this? Why does he give us these pastors and teachers? These in the church will teach us these things. Verse 12, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, for the glory, the building up of the body of Christ, so that he is ultimately glorified. I cannot express enough how vital gathering together today and every single time we can with God's people is to our Christian walk and our life in general. So many people think church is just an afterthought. All throughout the Word of God, we see that gathering together as the body of Christ is the the glue, the lifeblood that encourages us and strengthens us and edifies us to keep moving forward, to keep our eyes on Christ. This gathering is so much more than just a mere social setting where we can catch up with friends. And fellowship is great and good, but biblical fellowship is not just, hey, how you doing? It's, hey, how can I pray for you today? How are you doing when you walk with Christ? How can I lead you in some way? How can I serve you in some way? It's more than social gatherings to catch up with friends. It is chances and a chance to worship our Father in spirit and in truth, to be instructed in the Word and to serve the Father by serving His church. The church, in reality, is a gift from our Father. And we should, we should honor that. We should be excited to gather together. See, our Father is a Father who loves, who corrects, who sacrifices for us, who teaches us. And the truth is, we have to learn from that. We have to worship Him for that, but we have to ask ourselves the questions as parents, as grandparents, followers of Christ, how are we doing these things in the lives of others today? As we wrap up this message this morning and we've seen all the amazing and powerful ways that God has demonstrated that he is the world's, really, truly the universe, really, truly the creation, all of creation's best dad ever. I want to challenge us as dads. And so let me say this real quick because when I say something like this, sometimes as a woman in the church, you might feel like, well, okay, I can disconnect now. I don't want to listen anymore. This is just for the dads. If you're a woman here today raising a young man, if you're a grandmother of, of a young man or of a son, son-in-law, if you hope to marry one day, I pray that you will listen to this and understand that these are the men that God calls us to be. These characteristics, these things are vital to understanding what it is to walk with Christ. And I'm not going to give you a list of things. I'm just going to share a couple thoughts about what a man of God, God's man, really looks like. I want to encourage us, again, as dads, as men, who one day may be a dad, encourage parents that are raising young men. I want to encourage us to challenge and even change the cultural expectation of men in our country today. I want to challenge us to change the cultural expectation of dads and as men in our world today by learning from our Heavenly Father. You're in Ephesians. Go to chapter 6 and verse 4. Now again, the Bible is not a roadmap for life. The Bible is not going to explain every specific detailed situation you're ever going to go through and tell you exactly what to do. The Bible's not going to tell you how to handle your 401k specifically. 
but it'll teach you principles on finances. It'll teach you principles on these things. The goal of the word of God is to make us more like Christ so that then we live in a way that honors him in all areas of our life. But I want to look at this verse because to me, this is one of those job descriptions to dads. And again, it's not exhaustive, but man, it's a great summary verse. Ephesians 6, 4 says this, And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Simple verse, right? Just a few words. The word nurture in that verse is defined as training and instruction, which aims at increasing virtue. Also, it carries the definition of correcting and chastening. What does our Father do for us because he loves us? He corrects us. He disciplines us. He leads us into, no, 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 not like that, more like this. And as we as dads are being chastened by the Lord, we then grow in understanding what that love looks like. And now we can appropriately and within the right bounds lead our children and bring correct discipline and lead them in the right ways as the situation requires. The word admonition carries the idea of exhorting someone to exhort someone, which means to fix or set a clear idea of or in the mind. Catch this now, to fix or to set a clear idea of or in the mind. It is a conscious exhorting where we set the truth of who God is in our children's minds. We must decide as dads and as men who may be dads one day to pass down more than just mere work ethic to our children. We must decide today to pass down more than just how to swing a bat or how to swing a club. We must pass down more than just mere surface male culture. We must pass down the passion for Christ above all else. We must change and challenge the cultural norm in our world today. And here's the thought I want to share with you. This is not just a worldly thing. This has crept into the church. In media today, dads are perceived as one of two ways. Either the dope that can't seem to figure anything out who needs his wife or else he'll fall apart. I do need my wife. I will probably fall apart without her. But these king of queens, everybody loves Raymond kind of dads. Just dopes, just doofuses. They can't quite, they stumble through life. They lie to their wives to get what they want. They deceive They manipulate. That's one way media portrays the fathers in our country today. The other way is these overly macho, overly just crazy, just no emotions, no feelings, these brutes, these cavemen that just go about dragging their knuckles on the ground. And I am just to a point in my life where I am just so annoyed and of God's men being put in those boxes. I'm so done with male culture in our world today that tells young men that you are judged successful by the money in your bank account. What a bunch of garbage. This is junk. And I'm telling you, it's in the church today. And I'll give you one example. And I asked this person if it was okay if I shared this because they did not in any way, shape, or form mean it in the way that I took it. It wasn't offensive. It wasn't anything. 
and I'm not saying this to, to, to attack anyone or to discourage anyone. Understand me now. Last fall, our ladies' ministry went to a ladies' retreat in Lake Ann, and they're going again this fall. I had a great time. About 40 ladies, I think, went, something like that, 40, 45 ladies total. I think like 35 of them were from our church or something like that. And so we were thinking ahead of time, we were kind of teasing back and forth some of the ladies about, you know, obviously that's 35 that show up on a Sunday morning that probably won't be here, right, because it goes through Sunday. And we were joking about that, and they were teasing, like, oh, you're going to have an empty house. And we were laughing about it, you know. And, and after the retreat, I was talking with someone, and, and I, said, uh, I said, actually, you know, praise God, we had a really good turnout. I mean, for missing 35 people, we had a really, really good turnout. We weren't that much under our normal attendance. And this person, again, I talked to them. They, they know my heart. I know theirs. We're all good, okay? So if you're thinking, oh, I can't believe, they gave me permission to say this, okay? And I'm not telling you who it is because it doesn't matter to you. It mattered to me, okay? I said, yeah, you know, I said, it was really cool to see so many come out. And this person said, with all just sincerity, really meaning it, said, wow, that's so cool that the guys would go without their wives. And I was thinking to myself for the last so many months, man, I know what she meant, and she meant it as a good thing. And I, I, she said, I, I, even when I talked to her, she said, no, I really didn't mean it like this. And I said, I know, I, I totally get what you meant. But as a man, that just grinded something in me to think, man, where have we come in our understanding of male culture in the church that we would get excited when a guy shows up to church because his wife isn't there? As though somehow a man can't say, I need to go to worship my God. And I know, again, please understand my heart on this. I'm not knocking anyone, but I'm just telling you, if we're not careful in the church, we have made things so we made people think it's all about just this a very feminine thing. There is nothing feminine or masculine about the gospel. It's for everyone. Worship is not a feminine or masculine thing. It's for all of God's people to exalt the risen Savior. And I'm telling you right now, men, we need to decide that we're not going to bow down to cultural norms anymore. We're not going to go along with the broken male culture of our world today. We're going to say, no, I'm going to be God's man. I'm going to stand on his word. I don't care what it costs. I don't care what it looks like. I don't care what people say about me. I don't care what kind of car I drive. I don't care about any of that surface stuff. I'm going to stand on God's word and raise my children in God's word, and so that they will honor Christ for all of eternity. I can't make them do anything, but I want to set the stage for them so that when I stand before Christ, he's not going to ask you, by the way, how'd you do on that retirement plan? He's not going to ask you, by the way, how you doing on your success in world's eyes. And the Bible says the things we do for Christ will remain. So dad, my challenge is this, and please don't think I'm standing here as though I've figured it all out. I haven't. Man, I blow it daily as a dad. But my challenge to you is this. Will you challenge the cultural norm, change even maybe the cultural norm, and say, I'm going to be God's man. I'm going to learn from the example of my heavenly father. I'm going to love my children. I'm going to, as God leads me by his grace, I'm going to correct my children so that they will grow in Christ. I'm going to sacrifice for my children. 
That means I'm going to put my hobbies on the back seat. I'm going to put my desires maybe a little bit on hold so that I can serve them and honor them and help them to grow into who they need to be in Christ. And I'm going to teach my children, not just even my children, I'm going to teach my family what it is to walk with Christ. What did Joshua say? You got to choose. I love Joshua as an example of a a strong man of God. You got to choose. You're going to worship these gods or you're going to worship the one and only God. And you better make a choice who your family is going to serve. Because, Dad, I hate to tell you this, but I'm glad to tell you this. We aren't reacting to the things happening in our house. That's not how it should be. We're not a thermometer that reacts to what goes on in our homes. We're a thermostat. We're supposed to set the temperature of our homes. Again, you might say, well, I can't make. No, you can't. You can't. You can't make anyone do anything. That's not what I'm saying. But, man, we can control what we do. So, Dad, are you a thermometer just reacting? Or are you a thermostat setting the tone? Are you a dad that's engaged or a dad that just keeps his head down and just thinks, I just want to get through the living room without having a conversation or making eye contact? I've never done that. I'm just saying I've heard some people try this. <laughs> Man, I am so excited for what God is doing in men's lives in our church today. I'm so excited how he's growing men in our church. And I just want to let you know, man, there is so much more available for us. As God's man, we can walk with him and learn from the example of our Heavenly Father. So if you're here today and you're a dad or you're a husband or you hope to be one of those two one day, maybe you would come this morning. And I don't usually kind of prompt this, but I just felt all week that God was just leading me to say, man, we need to, I need to challenge men to come, to bend a knee, and say, God, I'm just going to be your man. Amen. Whatever that looks like. Whatever that looks like. I'm just going to be your man. So we're going to bow in prayer, and the band's going to come, and I'm just going to ask, would you come this morning as a dad, as a man, as a father, and say, I'm going to bend my knee. I'm going to say, God, give me the wisdom and the grace and the ability to do what you called me to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, I pray that you would take what was said today and allow it to be an encouragement to the men in this church, to the followers of Christ here. Lord, for all of us, man or woman, we need to see you as our good and loving Heavenly Father. We need to worship you because you are so good. You love us. You sacrificed for us by sending your Son. You correct us when we get sideways because you know what's the best for us. And you teach us your word and all that you have for us. So Father, for the men and women here today and all the followers of Christ, I pray that we would honor you in these things and lift you up and praise you. Lord, for the dads here today, I pray that we would decide to be your man, to walk in a way that honors you in all things. And Lord, I know, myself included, we are not perfect, but I'm so thankful for grace. I'm so thankful that if we have wandered, if we've bought into the cultural norms, that we can repent of those things, receive grace and turn to you, and you will restore us. Help us, Father. We can't do this without you. And may you be glorified in all that is said and done, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning as we have a time of invitation? If you're a dad here today, 
man that wants to be a dad or a father or just a young man that wants to be God's man today, right now. It doesn't matter. You want to come and bend a knee and say, God, help me to be your man. I want to be God's man in my home, in my career, and in my neighborhood. Not to glorify me, but to glorify you. If that's you today, would you come? If you're a follower of Christ today and you want to come and honor him for being your dad, your good and loving Heavenly Father, maybe you'd come and bend a knee as we worship this morning. You respond to what God is doing.